This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, filmmaker and author Rick Beyer on the ghost army of World War II. This idea of, of having a unit that's dedicated to deception, that's mobile, that's multimedia, can work on the battlefield, I have never seen anything like it anywhere in history. And I've talked to a lot of people. Any given deception probably starts with radio. One of the soldiers called it the stage setter, because you can start radio 50 miles away, and you can be sending all these phony transmissions to make it seem to the Germans like a whole unit is coming. You know, every guy who I interviewed for that documentary film has passed away. But I do feel that that what these guys did was incredibly important and unusual and really worth honoring. Rick Beyer, welcome to Chatter. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, I'm really excited to talk with you about your book, The Ghost Army of World War II. One of the reasons I really was interested in speaking with you is I've covered intelligence for you know a couple of decades now. And usually when we talk about intelligence and espionage and operations, people conjure up images of you know, spies going in on daring missions to retrieve information, or, you know, uh, we think of electronic surveillance. Um, We don't often think about another really big part of intelligence, which is deception and taking actions to make an adversary believe something that's not true or to distract them from the truth. And that's really what's at the core of this just tremendous story about this World War II outfit uh, called the Ghost Army. So we're going to get into all of that. Um, I wonder if you could start, though, by telling me how this kind of improbable outfit began. We're at the 80th anniversary this month in December of the order that created this group. So tell us what its origin story is. Well, it, I, I like to say that the Ghost Army uh, w- w- was born of a marriage of opposites because there are two U.S. Army officers who really came up with this idea and, and shepherded it through, uh, and they were very, very different. So Major Ralph Ingersoll had been a civilian who was drafted into the Army. He was a famous a publisher, author, journalist, uh, uh, a very uh, left-wing. He started a newspaper in New York called PM. Uh, and he was uh, uh, he was also a guy with a kind of a um, a tenuous relationship with the truth. Uh, one person who worked with him said, "I never met such a bright guy who was such a goddamn liar." Um, <laughs> and uh, and said, which is the perfect pedigree for a deception officer. You're sure. smart and and you're you're good at lying. So he ends up um, he ends up being drafted, but he becomes an officer. He serves in North Africa, and then he is in. Uh, London working for the special plans branch for the U.S. Army forces there in 1943, and they're working on planning the invasion. And his boss there is Colonel Billy Harris. And Billy Harris is the exact opposite of Ralph Ingersoll. He's a a military, you know, square, clean-cut West Point guy. His father was a general. His brother was a general. Everybody in his family is generals. He becomes a general later on. Um, And the two of them together... Uh, are the people who developed this idea. And I think what's happening is they are working with the British on a on a big deception plan for the D-Day invasion called Operation Fortitude to deceive where the invasion is going to go. That's to say that it's going to go to the Pas de Calais when it really is aiming for Normandy. Right. And, uh, and, 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 but they are also working on what can they develop for the American army once it lands in Normandy, what kind of capabilities can they develop? And Ingersoll, when he'd been in North Africa, he'd seen British tactical deceptions at the Battle of El Alamein, where they disguised tanks as trucks, and they disguised trucks as tanks, and they tried to fool the Germans about where the the real troops were. And so his idea was, well, we could create kind of a corps that's dedicated to this idea uh, of deception. And, and he thought, uh, he called them my con artists. And he, he and uh, Harris developed the idea. And Ingersoll is kind of the pie in the sky. Let's try this guy. Harris is the feet on the ground. How do we make this work in the army guy? And they come up with the idea of this deception unit that we now refer to as the ghost army. Uh, and the amazing thing to me, Shane, is that 
uh, they pass this up the line to their boss and he passes it to his boss, who's General Jake Devers, because this is before Eisenhower's the commander there. Mm. And they say yes. I mean, because the generals easily could have gotten that is way too Sounds weird. Too wild, yeah. Uh, so we're not going to do that. But they say yes, and they develop this deception capability. Why did they say yes? I think they said yes because they were going up against the Germans, who in their minds were the very best army on the planet. And they knew that they were going to be able to put over, I mean, the original invasion plan was to put three divisions in France on that first day. It ended up being changed to five divisions. But uh, if the Germans uh, figure out where they are and can mass their forces against them, it's going to be a very near thing, this battle. And so they want to have every capability they can have. And one of the things about the Ghost Army, which, and we'll talk about the ways that they carried out deception, but they are 1,100 men. That's a pretty small number of it's men. Tiny, yeah. But they can pretend to be 20,000 or mm -hmm. 40,000. So this is a force multiplier. And if you're in, in really concerned about, about it's going to be a close shot with the enemy, how do we beat them? This seemed like a good bet. How much experience had commanders in warfare had with deception techniques like this. I mean, people are familiar with before the Normandy landing, there are the, you know, the fake tanks and the vehicles and the rubber tanks people have seen pictures of that are put out there to make the Germans think the invasion's coming one place when it's really coming from another. I mean, deception's been a part of war, but had anyone tried anything at this scale with this kind of physicality to it before? Deception is as old as the Trojan horse, right? And so um and and which worked great that first time, but you never really hear about a second time that they right. use the Trojan horse. You can only use it once, yeah. Yeah, so so that's kind of a one-off idea. This idea of of having a uh, a unit that's dedicated to deception, that's mobile, that's multimedia, can work on the battlefield to carry out tactical deceptions. I have never seen anything like it anywhere in history, and I've talked to a lot of people and said, have you ever seen anything like this? And there just doesn't seem to be an example of it. In general, commanders would get an idea for a deception. So they uh, uh, take some troops and they attach them and they say, well, you guys do the fooling here for you know two days or a week or two weeks. Uh, and then they bring them back in. But this idea of a dedicated unit for deception really appears to be something that was original to the American army in 1943 and 1944. Yeah, and it goes roving around, and we'll we'll talk about that too, because it seems like the the their mission really begins after the D Day landing, doesn't right. it? Right. You know, I go, I do a lot of talks about the Ghost Army, and sometimes uh, I will say at the beginning of a talk, I say, um, "How many of you guys have heard of Operation Fortitude, the D Day deception?" And a large number of people will raise their hands. How many of you think that that's what I'm going to talk about tonight? And almost all those people will raise right. their hands. And I say, well, I have good news and bad news. And <laughs> the bad news is that that's not what I'm going to talk about. And right. the good news is that what I'm going to talk about is in many ways even more interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So well, who, let's talk about, before we get into the missions, a part of the book that I find so fascinating, and, and part of this is because, you know, I, I'm a great lover of art and of Hollywood and performance. Talk about the people who were recruited into this. I mean, some of these individuals went on to become renowned American artists and very important painters. So who are the people that get recruited into the Ghost Army? Well, uh, one of the ways that the Ghost Army is going to fool the enemy is with inflatables. Uh, and I don't think we're giving away too much with that. But inflatables to be viewed by any, any enemy aerial reconnaissance. And uh, so to, to, to work with these inflatables, the Army assigns to this unit a, a camouflage unit that's already been put together. It's a, it's a pre-existing unit, the 603rd camouflage engineers. And about a third of the guys in that unit are artists. They're mostly art students or young artists. Um, uh, many of them came from Pratt Institute in New York. We've identified about 30 people who came from Pratt Institute. So they were really feeding right into this. And this group of people includes a bunch of people who went on to become quite famous after World War II. So Ellsworth Kelly, who became a famous minimalist painter and sculptor, uh, Bill Blass, who became a very famous fashion designer. He's not so well known today, but he was very big in very the big. 80s and 90s. Yeah. Um, Arthur Singer is a name that's familiar to wildlife artists, uh, uh, wildlife uh, um, you know, bird watchers. 
Arthur Singer is a name that's familiar with bird watchers. Uh, he illustrated the book Birds of North America, and he and his son created the famous Birds and Flowers of the 50 States uh, postage stamp series. But you had guys who did all sorts of stuff. Art Kane took the very famous photograph of 57 jazz musicians on a stoop in Harlem, which he did, I think, in like 1957. And, and I love the thing about, I love about that story. It's this iconic photograph that many people have seen. It was literally his very first assignment as a professional photographer. Uh, pretty so, you peak early. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Uh, and so, uh, so all of those guys, and we've identified all sorts of people who were comic book artists, people who became um, architects, a guy who worked on the Space Needle in Seattle, one of the creators of the Munsters was in this unit. So it really, I mean, I, I don't know what it would have been like to listen to the conversations that are going on during the war, but this was an extraordinary group of people. But you also have uh, some interesting people in the other units as well. You have uh, engineers that have been recruited, uh, telephone company people, um, they, there is a kind of a, a lot of people think that they recruited from Hollywood and they do have some people from Hollywood, but I think that they mostly went to Hollywood later. So I don't think that they recruited from Hollywood, but they recruited people who were radio announcers, all sorts of stuff to bring their skills in to carry off these deceptions. And we should say too, that these were not missions without risk. I mean, people shouldn't have the impression that these are painters and artists and sound designers who kind of stayed in the background and then their their material was sent off to war. They were out on the lines, sometimes behind the lines, conducting real operations and putting themselves at great risk to do it. Absolutely. So this deception unit, and we should say, if I haven't said it, the official name of the unit is the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, which is like the most boring name yeah, for Ghost Army, way better. fascinating unit. But this <laughs> unit uh, carries out 22 different deception missions on the battlefields of Europe. So they're not 100 miles behind the lines. Sometimes they're not even a mile behind the, uh, you know, uh, back of the lines. They have missions where they're out basically a quarter of a mile from the Germans. Uh, and they take artillery fire on a number of occasions. They lose uh, three people killed uh, during the course of the war. And a, a, a really, I, I, I think about 30 who were wounded. And it's a little confusing because... Not all of them received Purple Hearts, but as you go through the records, you realize that there's a bunch of people who were wounded. And I think because of, I don't know, because of secrecy or because mm. of whatever, uh, they didn't receive Purple Hearts. Uh, they were lucky. They And they recognized they were lucky. They could have had the Germans figured out what they were doing. Um, and attacked in their area in force, they could have been uh, wiped out. And that came close to happening at the Battle of the Bulge. But they, they, they took casualties. They were in danger, but they were lucky. There's a great quote uh, that begins the second chapter of your book from uh, is it Jack Massey. Or is it Jack Massey or Maisie? Jack Massey. Macy. Jack Massey, who says, uh, of the people in this group, we were looked on as kind of nutcases by the hardworking, no-nonsense backbone of America, the people that worked for a living and didn't sketch. Uh, I, I just it's, love and, that. And, and, and to finish that quote, he says, they, they thought we were we were kind of freaks, and I think we were, he says. <laughs> right. That's great, yeah. But it really is. I mean, it, it sort of underscores the degree to which – you know, we think of people as you know as artists, like creatives and nonconformist, and, and they are people who often don't fit in. But they just, boy, did they ever fit into a mission uh, here! Talk about some of the first operations that this this group was sent off on, like when they when they when they when they are first standing up. And you mentioned there were twenty two of them in a fairly short period of time, I think. But what was some of the the, the first forays that they had? So, the very first. Part of the Ghost Army goes into uh, Normandy. The first deception operation happens about a week after D-Day, and it's very small scale. It's a task force Mason, led by Bernie Mason, who I got to interview, uh, goes in, and they're going to impersonate an artillery uh, battery. They're going to put up false, uh, you know, uh, inflatable artillery pieces about a mile ahead of the real battery, and then they're going to have um, flash canisters so they can make it seem like they're firing at the same time the real battery is firing. 
and they're going to try to draw German artillery fire onto them instead of the real battery. And so that is the very first operation they do. Um, it lasts about a month, and uh, they manage to uh, succeed. They draw off enemy fire, but they're dug in well enough that they're not uh, uh, injured by it. Um, their first full-scale operation in Normandy is called Operation Elephant, and that is uh, not really terribly successful. Uh, they're they're uh, they're just still kind of learning what they're doing. And then I think the first operation where they really use all their different types of deception together um, uh, is Operation Breast, and that is uh, the Germans are in the um, they the the Germans have uh, who have been on the Brittany Peninsula have retreated into the city of Brest and the Americans are attacking to try to, to take the city, to take the port. Uh, and the ghost army is brought in to pretend to be the sixth armored division uh, attacking to the flanks. Uh, well, the real American attack is going to come from the center. Uh, and so this is the first time that they are able to use all their forms of deception. So they've got all their inflatables. They've got their sonic deception. They've got their radio deception. Uh, and they also, for the first time in Operation Breast, they use um, a fourth type of deception that they had developed, kind of came up from the enlisted guys and the junior officers that they called special effects, which mm -hmm. was... Uh, hey, if we're going to pretend to be the 6th Armored Division, we should have guys in 6th Division patches in town, and our, we should be driving trucks through that say 6th Armored Division, and you know anything to fool enemy spies who've been left behind. So Operation Breast is where they first used all four kinds of deception in August 1944. And then in September comes Operation Bettenberg, where they're now they're on the Luxembourg-Germany uh, border. Uh, and that's really where they start to gel and really be able to carry it off. And at that point, they are they are literally this group of of eleven hundred Americans is holding twenty five miles of George Patton's line. Well, Patton's attacking the fortress city of Metz, and they're doing it with inflatable tanks and sound effects and guys driving around in jeeps, uh, you know, wearing patches of the you know unit that they're impersonating uh and and carrying off this extraordinary deception that you know manages to keep the germans who are at that point are reorganizing and and trying to to strike back against the americans from realizing that they could get around behind Patton through that hole so i think that's one of their that's the uh, it's an early deception but one of their most amazing deceptions when they're going in and taking these these inflatables i mean are, are they I mean, are they heavy? I mean, is there a lot of gear that they're taking in to to put these things in the line and then actually to blow them up? And how do they inflate them when they get there? So the inflatables weigh about 90 pounds, the inflatable tanks. And I think that's the heaviest uh, of the inflatables that they had. Uh, they fit in a large duffel bag. It's kind of like a, the, the bag that you put your kids' soccer balls in for the for the big soccer game or a hockey bag. Um, they could. They had trucks, and they probably could fit about twenty of those into a truck. Uh, they had um, air compressors that they could use. Uh, Jack Macy, who you mentioned before, and who was one of the funniest of the people I interviewed, uh, said uh, in an interview that is in the film. He said, uh, "You know, if we were lucky, we had air compressors. If we were not so lucky, we had bicycle pumps. And if things really went bad." We had our lungs, um, <laughs> but most of the time they've got uh, air compressors. And another soldier, John Jarvie, talked about, it, you know, it, it would be if you're coming in someplace and you're trying to set up the inflatables at night, and you're up there in the front line, and then you fire up this gasoline powered <laughs> air compressor. He said it felt like the entire, you know, enemy front line was going to explode with uh, with artillery fire at you. But uh, the guys said that it took. Um, most of the inflatables took about 15 to 20 minutes to inflate, mm. but inflating an inflatable is only the first part of the job because second of all, you have to, you have to camouflage the inflatable, but do so badly on purpose. Hmm. Why? Uh, so that the enemy will see it, but not think that you wanted them to see it. Okay. So good, but not too good. <laughs> yeah. And then, <laughs> uh, and, and then you have to watch to make sure if it's a tank that the barrel doesn't start to deflate. And, you know, I have, <laughs> I have, um, 
I have worked with inflatable tanks for display purposes over the last 15 years. And I can tell you that is a frequent problem that I've had. And the soldiers, many of whom made uh, all manner of Viagra jokes about this. Sure. Uh, it was a frequent problem that they had as well. So you've got to monitor the stuff that you've inflated and make sure that it's still looking real. And oh, oh, and one other thing you have to do if you're working with inflatables. And if we were looking at a picture now of one of their operations, and I said to you, what makes it look real? And you see all these inflatable tanks on the field, you'd say, oh, the tank tracks. Because think mm. about it. We're setting up an inflatable 90-pound tank. That is not going to leave much in the way of tank tracks but a 40 ton sherman sure would so oh, yeah. uh they had to have a, a, a they had a combat engineering company and it, in that company they had three guys with bulldozers and they used the bulldozers to make the tank tracks when they're setting up the inflatables and if again think about it, you're doing this at night if you miss one that could clue the enemy into the whole thing because they'd be like, why is that tank not have any tank tracks to it? Wait a minute, we need to take a closer look at this. So attention to detail is so important in every aspect of these deceptions. And did they have to, because I'm wondering now with all of this activity, you, you kind of alluded to this earlier with the air compressors, how in the world they didn't give themselves away to the Germans. So did they have to come in knowing that the Germans would be nearby, but not so close that they could see them setting up these props? Yeah, so sometimes they're coming in uh, the closest that I can see that they're that they've come to the Germans. That they're bringing the inflatables is probably about a mile from the front line. Okay, so the sonic trunk trucks get closer. The sonic trucks have, and some of the deceptions are playing sounds from a quarter of a mile from the front line. The inflatables are back. So what they're doing is they're moving in. Uh, these tanks and and sort of making it seem like they're threatening an attack in an area. So they're not bringing them right up to the front, but they're bringing them in a in a place that they could organize their attack and and depart from, have a line of departure from that might be you know a mile behind. And some deceptions they're much further behind because they're not pretending to be doing an attack, but they're pretending to be moving into reserve or they're pretending simply to be going from one location to another. So it really depends on the on the deception that they're doing. But I think they're always careful not to, to be seen um, setting these up. They're either going to be setting them up at night or there's, if they're setting them up at another time of day, they're going to they, there must be in an area where they, they know there's no aerial reconnaissance. Uh, or or something to prevent them from being seen. Yeah, the image in my head is almost like uh, you know actors in a performance who are getting everything ready before the house opens and the and the curtain comes back and the audience suddenly sees everything in position. So they have to get it ready. And then you you kind of anticipated my next question: Is it it's aerial surveillance and other kind of nearby surveillance that they're then hoping will spot what they've done, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, and maybe this is a time to step back and say the, the idea of this unit is that it's a multimedia deception unit. So any given deception probably starts with radio. So they've got uh, a bunch of radio guys who have radio trucks. So if you're pretending, well, let's say we're pretending to be the 75th Infantry Division moving up into the front line. Radio, one of the soldiers called it the stage setter because you can start radio 50 miles away and you can be sending all these phony transmissions and bringing that up. And all you need is the same number of radio operators that a real unit would have maybe even fewer, uh, to make it seem to the Germans like a whole unit is coming. And then radio would be followed by the sonic deception, which is played out on these 500-pound speakers mounted on the back of half-tracks. So, so we hear the radio, and now we hear the sounds of a unit moving in. And then that would be followed by the visual deception, so that if that's happening at night, then by the next morning, you have inflatables. But you don't just have inflatables. You also have guys would put out lines, have clothing on them. You know, uh, If you're setting up a, an artillery uh, battery, you put the shells around it. You do all the things to make it look lived in and lots of people and lots of stuff going on. And then the last really type of deception you're bringing in is the special effects deception, which is the, the phony, the, the bumper markings on the vehicles, the shoulder patches. They would set up phony headquarters 
If you have a phony headquarters, you also need a phony general. So they'd take their own officers and and put them in, uh, uh, put general stars on them and have marched them in and out and, uh, and and doing various inspections. I mean, it sounds crazy, but you have all these different types of deception, and you don't expect the enemy to get all of them, right? You expect them to get bits and pieces, and then you're depending on that German intelligence officer. He's got a, somebody's reported hearing this and the radio guys think they heard a little bit of this and maybe the the, um, the aerial the reconnaissance saw something or a spy saw something. You're depending on him to take these all together and go, aha, I have figured out you know, that the 75th division is moving in here. And he's going to believe it because he believes that, that it is something that he has put together, that his brilliance has figured that out from the clues he's gotten when in fact it's just not true at all. Yeah, I think that's that's such a perceptive insight that it's it's not necessarily about the totality of the scene, but making somebody believe one or two pieces of it enough and making it compelling enough that they feel invested in it being true. And one of the parts of that then means that the very first step in a deception is you have to say, first of all, what do I want the enemy to do? Mm-hmm. What am I trying to manipulate them into doing? Uh, and and Ralph Ingersoll, one of the creators of this unit, said he didn't like the word deception. He liked the word manipulation. Mm. So what do I want the enemy to do? And now what do I want to convince them of that's going to make them want to do that? And then you develop your story. And the story is is the, probably the most important thing. Because once you've got your story, then you can feed it out to all these different channels, visual sonic, radio, special effects, and they're all playing the same story. And if the enemy gets one piece or gets three pieces or five pieces of that, hopefully they can put it together. And uh, yeah, that's that's basically the, the, the way uh, you make deception work. Because if you look honestly, if you just showed them everything, if we put a bunch of inflatable tanks out so you could see them, and if, uh, and if you know, we we had radio transmissions in the clear that weren't coded, and if if uh, you know, if it was all too obvious, they would they wouldn't buy it. So it, there's a certain amount of attention to detail and a certain amount of subtlety involved. Who was the one coming up with the stories, or who who had to make the decision? Okay, we want the enemy to do the following. You know, that is a great question, and I am not sure that I have a solid answer on it. I would say that it's most likely uh, the special uh, plans branch, uh, which initially is the special plans branch under Eisenhower, but then it becomes the special plans branch under uh, General Omar Bradley, who's the commander of the 12th U.S. Army Group. And that's um, that's Ralph Ingersoll and Billy Harris and Went Eldridge and a few other officers. And I think they are basically, they are working with uh, commanders, talking to commanders, getting the orders from Bradley. There's, I know of one deception where, where Bradley basically turns to Ralph Ingersoll and says, can you guys do anything to help us with this? You know, Patton's moving on Bastogne. The Germans are going to see what's happening. What can you do to, to fool the, the, the Germans about this? So I think that that's basically, it comes from Bradley and the top officers. And then somehow in that special plans branch, they develop the, the story and the ideas that then go out to uh, Colonel Reeder, who's the commander of the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. And then eventually it gets down to the, the four different types of deception. And do we have any sense of how this landed with the Germans. I mean, obviously, we, we can measure success probably in, in different ways. Maybe they were manipulated into firing on a position that wasn't real. But do we have any accounts of you know, the Germans even talking to themselves uh, that show us how convincing these deceptions were? Yeah, I don't have a lot of accounts from the German side. We do know that in their final deception, Operation Viersen, that the German maps had marked the 79th Division exactly where uh, the Ghost Army was portraying it along the Rhine River. Uh, We know of other deceptions where we can look at German documentation and German maps and say that that they bought a deception. But it's not everyone. And there's sometimes there's deceptions where they buy it for a day or two and then they kind of go, oh, maybe not. And their maps kind of erase that unit from the from the map. But, you know, one of the things is that you don't deception doesn't have to work for ever. Right. 
if if you think of a football game and a receiver does a, a, a head fake and 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 he gets a half step advantage on the defender that may be all he needs and you know sometimes 4 hours or 6 hours of having the enemy believe one thing and holding off on sending reinforcements someplace or taking an action might be all you need uh, to succeed i definitely think there is room for more research here on the german side of the equation and i would love to i i tried to do some and i had uh, a couple of instances of working with people, and it, you know, it it ended up being a little frustrating, and I didn't really get what I wanted. But I definitely think there's more research that can be done here that where we could really try to figure out how many of these deceptions really, really uh, convince them. I know Operation Bettenberg convinced them. I know Operation Breast convinced them. I know Operation Viersen convinced them. And there's a few others that I'm uh, pretty convinced. And then there's a bunch that I'm just not sure of. Well, so. even if it were four or five out of 22, that's a pretty good ratio, I would say. Well, especially since they never get discovered, right? Ah, so so uh-huh. the enemy never figures out, at least, again, according to what I've seen and all the research that I've done, they never figure out that this deception unit is operating against them. And that's important because let's imagine that the Germans realized that it was a fake unit in, let's say, Operation Battenberg, September 1944. So then they could look for, well, what are the things that, how did we figure that out? And how can we keep an eye on that in the future? And then every time the ghost army did a deception, the general, the Germans would say, okay, there's the ghost army. So we know the Americans don't have anything there. So right. they're trying to, to, to hit us from someplace else. So that is that never happened. And so that's important. And they were successful on a number of occasions. So yeah, I think you have to count that as being very successful. And their last deception, Operation Viersen, um, in which they're pretending, they're, they're literally the 1,100 guys in this unit are impersonating two divisions, which is 30 or 40,000 people Amazing. with hundreds of tanks and trucks and vehicles of all kinds. And they are... Um, uh, convince the Germans that this crossing of the Rhine River is going to take place 10 miles or 15 miles away from where it really does. Um, and that deception alone is believed to have saved thousands of lives. So um, that success all by itself would be enough to say this unit was worth setting up. I'm curious about some, that some of the visual artists who were, were part of this uh, group and Ellsworth Kelly maybe is one of the most famous, you know, people who went on to be a great painter. But what were the specific skills that they brought? I mean, were they was Ellsworth Kelly painting camouflage onto inflatable tanks? Uh, no, although he he was he was making posters at one point because I have a picture of him, uh, you know, in the screen shop uh, screening out posters of some kind. I think the idea was so the six hundred third camouflage engineers was originally set up as a camouflage unit. And, um, you know, camouflage is a form of artistry, right? How do we camouflage a factory to make it look like a village? How do we camouflage, you know, guns to make it look like they're not there? And um, many art schools at that time, and especially Pratt Institute, where a bunch of these guys came from, had set up camouflage courses as part of their um, educational you know, offerings. And so you had artists taking uh, camouflage courses and uh, and then the army, you know, kind of uh, institutes the draft and people are being drafted up. And so you've, you've got people, uh, you know, let's be honest here. You've got a certain number of people who simply don't really want to be in the infantry. Okay. Right. The infantry is the, the, the point of the spear. It's going to be where the highest casualties are. Uh, if I have a skill, I'm I'm looking for a place to go, and so I think the artists are looking to get into something else, and perhaps a, in this case, a camouflage unit. So you have, on the one hand, the army has a need for artists to go in a unit like this, and you've got artists who are, you know, talking to their friends, talking to their professors, filling out forms, doing what they can to get into a unit like that. And I think that the, the irony here is one of the one of the guys, and he's still alive, Bernie Bluestein. 
He's a hundred years old. And he says, you know, he says, I, I knew I didn't want to, I wasn't going to kill anybody. I didn't want to be in the infantry. I didn't want to go to the front lines at all. And I got myself into this nice camouflage unit. And then, <laughs> and then when suddenly we get assigned and we're going to be in the deception mission and we're going to be out there in the front lines with nothing but, you know, like a, like a small arms and an inflatable tank with the enemy on the other side of the river. He says, not what I was planning on getting into. And I think a lot of the guys had that feeling that they were kind of in this camouflage unit and they thought they were going to be like, they, they had camouflaged a big aircraft factory in Baltimore uh, that made B-26s to make it look like a, a, a village in case, of course, in case German bombers came. I don't know where they're going to come from, although Hitler Hitler had been working on a, a bomber that could bomb from across the Atlantic. Um and they uh, and they thought they were going to be spending their war in the U.S. And I think uh, it was quite a surprise. Um, Gil Seltzer said uh, when we when we realized what we were assigned to, we we thought we'd been put into a suicide outfit. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So so they got kind of the shock of their lives then being put into put into action the way they were. Um, and you've talked about the importance of sound and, and these sound designers. How, how was sound used in these operations? Oh, I think sound is a great, uh, it, it, is, it is a fascinating topic. So they had developed, uh, and it actually, uh, they were developing this sonic deception unit even before the, you know, 80 years ago, they, they put together the orders for the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. And this unit was the 3132nd Signal Service Company Special. And so their mission is to use recorded sound to fool the enemy. And what they did is they, first of all, they went down to the Army Proving Ground at Fort Knox, and they worked with engineers from Bell Labs, and they recorded all sorts of sounds, sounds of tanks on the move, trucks on the move, guys digging in at the front lines, people assembling pontoon bridges, just about anything that you could imagine that you would need. And they recorded these on these 16-inch glass transcription discs that were the same thing that they used in recording studios to like record Frank Sinatra and a hit song. And then they made from this a collection of sound effects records. Right. So they went to war with this collection of sound effects records. Now, you're not going to play sounds from a record. And, and of course, the rec you, you're going to need to mix the sounds together for any given deception to be convincing to, to tell the enemy what you want them to hear. So they mixed them from these records onto um, uh, magnet magnetized wire. OK, so this is before there's audio tape which is magnetized tape, there's wire. And it's about the consistency of fishing wire uh, and fishing line. And about six feet of it is about one second of sound. Uh, and so they would mix onto these wires the, uh, let's say, we're trying to make it seem like uh, a tank unit is moving in, they're moving up a hill, they're moving down a hill, they're crossing a bridge, and then they're digging in. And so they would mix that onto the wire. And then they would... Uh, once they had created the wires they needed, then the they would have the half tracks with the speakers on them and the playback equipment could be set up, you know, starting five miles back, right? Or however far you want it to be. And they would start, let's say they start the show five miles back at seven o'clock and then at 7.30, they start the one that's two miles back. And at 8 o'clock, they start the one that's that's here. The sound is moving, right? It's coming closer. It's moving into where where you want it to be. And and sonic deception was, I mean, I mean, radio deception was probably their most effective tool. Sonic deception was a close second, and it fooled a lot of people. Uh, there's all sorts of stories of other American units who are hearing the sounds moving in, and like they're like, "Yeah, I mean, you know, tanks are moving in, and we hear it, and we it's going on." Uh, and um, and and the speakers on these half tracks had a range of 15 miles, so you could start a long ways away. But oftentimes in these deceptions, the sonic guys told me they ended up being way up near the front, you know, because we want to really make sure the enemy is hearing us. So we're going to put you, you know, a quarter mile, half mile from the front lines. And there's really nobody between you and the Germans and good luck. 
Um, and so, uh, but sound is an amazing story. And, and I imagine they've, they've never done anything. These designers, sound designers, if we can even think of them in the traditional sense as sound designers of this scale before. I mean, there's no, there's no theatrical production that needs you to be able to project from 15 miles away and a film does everything on a sound stage or close into a camera. I mean, were they just making this up and kind of improvising as I really they did? think they were. I really think they were. You know, there's not the, the, the record, the paperwork is thin because it's a secret unit and they weren't like big into putting a lot of things on paper. But I, I, one gets the impression that this is uh, improvisation all the way. And, and I think a lot of the credit has to go to the uh, operations officer, Colonel Clifford Simonson. And this was a guy who had been, he'd been working in the Pentagon uh, and, and he'd had a stint there and they said, what do you want to do? And he says, oh, I want to be a, a, a command a paratroop unit. So they send him to jump school. He makes his first jump and then suddenly he gets orders to this crazy unit that he doesn't know anything about. And he's taking a train across the country and the whole time he's thinking, well, who the hell did I piss off? You know, what did I do? <laughs> but he gets the air to Camp Forest in, in North Carolina and he sort of takes stock of the situation and 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 he he has a really good attitude about it. He's like, okay, well, we're gonna try to make this work. And they literally, he says, he says in his in his very brief biographical materials that he left, that um, there were no manuals, there were no doctrines, that they had to develop it and make it up as they went along. And I really think that it's his initiative that manages to do that and that they develop ways to carry out all these deceptions. And, and did that doctrine inform future deception operations or the things that the ghost army did that become the basis for what the military and intelligence agencies will do in generations hence? Uh, so I, I, you know, the ghost army story is classified after World War II and, and, you know, people say, well, why is it classified? So, well, it's classified because, you know, we thought it worked and we thought we might have another war against mm. the Russians and, uh, we would need those skills, but somehow in classifying it, the, the army seemed to classify it from themselves as well. <laughs> and, and, uh, it, it kind of got lost and it really wasn't reintroduced until, Gosh, I'm going to say the 90s, um, and you start to see maybe it's late 80s and 90s, and you start to see, uh, you know, um, Fred Fox, who was an officer in the Ghost Army, has lunch with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, you know, Bill Blass is invited to the Pentagon, uh, and he's talking to the CIA, and so you really are getting a, a sense that that people are now going back and and looking at these techniques and saying this was really good. We, we should come back and adopt this. And, you know, people say, well, yeah, but it wouldn't work today. You know, you couldn't have inflatable tanks aren't going to work in today's battlefield. And it's like, well, don't tell the Ukrainians because mm. they're using inflatable tanks and artillery. And now they're equipped with, um, radar transponders and uh and they've got you know heat generating elements to full thermal imaging and you know this stuff is is still going on so i do think that the that the the ghost army has inspired the current day uh, deception thinking that goes on in a lot of places but i do think it was kind of lost for a while by the u.s army which is probably not the first time that that's happened, right? I yeah. mean, you you know more about that than I do. But well, yeah, well, let's talk about kind of how it gets unearthed. I mean, you mentioned Fred Fox, who is one of these characters I really loved reading about in your book, who is, I mean, it just seems like, you know, somebody who is just wants to be a star, and right? And he engages in a lot of these special effects kinds of operations where they're going into villages pretending to be generals to fool the, you know, leftover German spies and collaborators into thinking the Americans are, are moving in. Um, you know, wh when does the military start reaching out generations later to guys like him and Bill Blass? How do they how do they figure out, first of all, that this even happened? Well, I think um, a, a lot of the credit has to go to my friend Roy Eichhorn, who uh, who was in my documentary film and he's quoted in my book and he's on the board of our Ghost Army Legacy Project. And Roy Roy's uh, father, uh, his stepfather, really, George Martin was one of the Ghost Army soldiers. But Roy ended up working for the U.S. Army and working for the um, 
gosh, he had a bunch of different posts, but he's working at Fort Belvoir in kind of a research and teaching uh, uh, position. And he started to do research into the ghost army and, and initially found people in the U.S. Army uh, above him. He'd ask them if they'd heard about it. Or anything, and they, they told him he was crazy. Nobody's ever done anything like that. Well, you know, what are you talking about? But he, he starts to track it down. And then, um, and then once he does that, he starts to kind of make introductions and put people uh, together. Uh, he brings Ghost Army veterans back to um, to some uh, seminars that are held uh, with the U.S. Army, so that there can be a, a kind of a transferring of information. And I think Roy is also very um, Roy is also very secrecy oriented. So I'm sure there's parts of that story that he hasn't told me. Uh, <laughs> let's just say, still um, to this day, yeah, yeah, probably. But I think that 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 was part of it. Although although Fred Fox having lunch with the Joint Chiefs and taking place in the Stratagem Conference that happens well earlier. So I'm not exactly sure. So Fred Fox is involved in this Deception Conference, and I I'm going to say I think it was in '77, but it's sometime around then. And um, and 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 uh, and Billy Harris is also involved in it. Ralph Ralph Ingersoll is not, and um, and it's still secret. I tried. I've, it, it was called the Stratagem Conference, and there's this two-volume transcription, you know, of everything that went on in this conference, and it's still secret. So I've applied for a, a Freedom of Information Act request, which has basically been ignored, um, and so I don't have all the answers as to exactly how they figured it out. But somebody put it together and brought these guys back, and that sort of started it. And then Roy's work really built on that and and got it a lot further with the U.S. Army. And today, I mean, I think there's, I've spoken to a number of branches of the of the U.S. military, um, including the PSYOP soldiers at Fort Bragg and, and, and I've been down at the, um, what is it, the special operations in, uh, in Tampa and other places. And, you know, there's a lot of interest in the ghost army. And of course the U S army is not telling me everything that they're doing, but I do think that their deception capability today is probably much more robust than it was 20, 25 years ago. And, and obviously, you know, you find out about the story and, you know, you've made a film about this. You've, you've co-authored a book about it. You were really involved, I think, too, in helping the Ghost Army get recognition from Congress for the work that they did, right? And, and an award from Congress. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, I would love to talk about that, you know, at, at length, Shane, at, at length. Um, yeah, I, uh, I had... Uh, the film came out in 2013 and the book that I wrote with Elizabeth Sales originally came out in 2015. And then we just had an updated edition that came out this year. And, um, and I, and I was thinking as this book was coming out that really it was time that this unit be honored because they really hadn't been honored uh, during world war II. Some of the guys had heard talk that they were going to be awarded a presidential unit citation, but it never happened. And, um, and so I thought that the best way to honor them after I did some research would be a Congressional Gold Medal, which is the highest honor Congress can bestow. And it, is, uh, it has been used to, to honor other World War II military units who were not honored at the time for various reasons, like the Tuskegee Airmen or the Doolittle Raiders or the WASPs, women uh, air service pilots. Uh, and so... Um, I didn't know, Shane, when I started, how hard it would be to get Congress to pass a bill to do this. And one of the things that I learned early on um, is that a gold medal is actually harder than just a regular bill in Congress because a gold medal bill requires that you get two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate to co-sponsor the bill. So they literally, you, before it can even be considered, you have to get... Uh, you know, I used to have these numbers right in my head, but it's like 350 uh, congressmen, uh, or maybe it's two six, whatever. It's a large number of congressmen and 67 senators uh, to 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 sign their names on and say, "I am for this legislation." Yeah. Oh, and by the way, every Congress, when that Congress ends, you start at zero again, oh, beginning resets, of the next yeah. Congress. And 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 of course, you're dealing with staff people, and when you get to the next Congress, that staff person might not be there anymore, and there's a new whole new people that you have to introduce. So 
we started working on this. It took us seven years, four mm. Congresses. We had a whole bunch of people who volunteered. We had some great young people, uh, as young as 14, who were lobbying, who were just tremendous. Um, uh, and, and you know, we just did it a little bit by a little bit. And President Biden signed that legislation in February 2022. The medal has been designed. It has been minted. The duplicates have been minted. And we are in discussions with um, the speaker's office right now about when the ceremony will be. And I think it's going to be this spring. So um, exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. And, you know, I mean, it's 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 a bittersweet because. You know, every guy who I interviewed for that documentary film has passed away. Mm. There are only, I'm, you know, I probably talked to, f- I mean, I talked to 21 people for the film. I've probably talked to 50, 60 Ghost Army soldiers. Um, there are only eight who are still alive. And I don't know that we're going to get more than um, two or three to come to this ceremony. But I do feel that that what these guys did was incredibly important and and unusual and really worth honoring. Um, and so in that sense, I'm really excited and I'm excited for their families. And, you know, some of these families, you know, were told about it a long time ago. And some of them literally are like just discovering. You know, they're, wow. they, you know, people go, we have a website, which is ghostarmy.org. And we have a project there where we have every soldier who served in the ghost army is, is listed there. And we're trying to write bios for them. And we've written about 400 bios so far. And, uh, and people are email me. I get an email every week of people going, oh my God, we just were on your website because we were searching our dad. We knew he's in the 23rd. We didn't know what that was. We just looked it up and we're, we're gobsmacked by this. Um, so you've got all these people who are still finding out about this and, and, and so it's, it'll be great for them and, you know, it'll be, and it'll be great for the veterans who are able to make it and great for everybody who's inspired by this unit and, and, and thinks they're, they're really worth the recognition. How did you find out about the story? What was your first clue? Well, I was a much younger man. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long journey, huh? 19 years. Wow. 19 years. So it, back in, 2005, January of 2005, I got an email from my buddy, Mark Tomizawa, and he said, I, I've been serving on a board with this woman and her uncle was in this crazy unit in World War II and she thinks somebody should make a documentary film about it and would you be willing to meet with her? And I, um, you know, I, we talked about this earlier, you know, there's always somebody who says, oh, you should make a film about X. Uh, and I would always say, no, you should, you know, uh, because you're passionate about it. And it's not that hard to make a film. If I can do it, anybody can do it. And, uh, and so, but I took this meeting and with this woman, whose name is Martha Gavin and, and her uncle is John Jarvie, who, who, if you've seen the film or read the book is a big character in our telling of the ghost army uh, story. And I remember sitting in this coffee shop. It was in early February of 2005 in Lexington, Massachusetts, where I lived at the time. And she walked in with the armload of red three ring binders. It was her uncle's wartime scrapbooks. And he was one of the artists in the unit. So you had his art in there and you had ephemera and photographs and stuff. And I'm leafing through these scrapbooks at this coffee shop in Lexington thinking, yeah, this could be kind of an interesting story. Now, I had no idea, Shane, that I was signing over the rest of my life <laughs> to it, uh, that I would spend 19 years working on it, that it would become like the project that that, that I don't, I'll never do something bigger, I don't think. I mean, I, I can't imagine. Um, but, but I was intrigued from the first moments, and, and that's kind of how we got started. Uh, telling that story, and how did you get into the documentary uh, filmmaking profession? What was your what was your start? Oh gosh, so uh, I had been working at an ad agency. I was co owner of the ad agency in Boston called Smash Advertising, uh, and my friend Marco I mentioned was one of the other co owners, and um, and we got a project to do a series of history minutes for the History Channel, and it was two hundred and eight. 208 History Minutes, uh, hosted by Sam Waterston. 
called Time Lab 2000. It was a huge project. It was like a two-year project. We shot with Sam three one-week periods where we would we would knock out 60 of these things in a, in a week. Uh, and they were all kind of based on this idea of, um, of, of, of a story with, with an aha ending, right? Something that, like how three cigars changed the course of the Civil War. So there you go. And, um, and, and, and doing this, I realized that I could marry my love of history with something that made money. And I hadn't kind of put that together before being a little slow in the uptake. So um, I said to uh, Artie Sheff, who was the marketing guy at the History Channel who'd hired me, I said, God, can you introduce me to the people there who, who um, make documentaries? I'd like to do that. And he said, well, I can introduce you, but they will never hire you. I remember those were his exact words. So he was wrong. They did hire me eventually. They, I started making documentaries for the History Channel. And most of the documentary work I've done has been for the History Channel, a little bit for National Geographic. And the Ghost Army is the one, the one film that, I, that every other film I've made was commissioned, right? So they said, here's $200,000, go make a film. Mm-hmm. And the Ghost Army was one that because nobody was interested in it, Nobody, I pitched that everywhere. Nobody was interested. And I said, well, you know, it's just too good a story. I'll raise the money myself. How hard can it be? <laughs> and, and you found out. Yeah, I found out. And we, we raised money from 700 donors. I oh learned a lot gosh. about fundraising and yeah. um, a little bit about the Ghost Army and filmmaking as well. We talked a little bit before we, we we started the interview about you know whether Hollywood ever came calling on this story, and you said there's been there's been interest in this. I mean, I can't imagine why they wouldn't want to make a story about you know basically people staging productions on a battlefield. But is that something? It's uh, you know uh, it, it, making a making a feature film. I would imagine is even more uh, of a of, of a gamble and and a slog perhaps than trying to get a documentary made. There have been a lot of attempts to make a movie about this, and I've actually done some research and and know. I mean, it actually started in the 1960s when it was still classified, and there was uh. a a movie screenplay written then by uh, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of his name, the guy who created the Dobie Gillis character in the, oh, really? in the uh, TV series. Uh, um, but he wrote a screenplay. Others were written in the 90s, and then uh, around the time that uh, the book came out. Uh, I was contacted by a Hollywood producer named Andrew Lazar, and that started a whole long thing. Uh, he optioned the film. He sold it to Universal. They hired a guy named Henry Gaden to write the screenplay. Then they hired a second guy named Nick Pizzolatto, who created the series True Detective, oh, to yeah. rewrite the screenplay or write a new one. I'm not sure because I haven't read those screenplays. And then they got, originally they had Bradley Cooper attached to this, and then they got Ben Affleck attached, and they got Ben Affleck signed on. He had a deal to direct and star in this movie. I met with Ben Affleck, and he's like, we're going to make this movie. And then, uh, uh, as my understanding is, that basically it, it, it didn't happen because Universal Studios had one budget in mind and Ben Affleck had another budget in mind and the twain could not meet. Now, there have been other uh, expressions of interest, both before that, there have been other since. There's a there's a possible deal percolating now. Um, you know, I, I think it... I, I think a couple of things. First of all, I think a movie will get made eventually because I just think it's it's too good a topic. But I think it must be hard. And maybe it's hard because because the special effects are so much better now than the than the actual special effects that the Ghost Army did that that it wouldn't that they they worry about it being convincing. Or maybe it's hard because they can't figure out the tone, you know, whether it should be comedy or serious and nobody's quite hit that, or maybe it's just Hollywood being nervous about um, everything. Um, but I do think a movie will get made, whether it will be based on my book and documentary, I don't know. Whether I'll still be alive when it happens, I don't know. But I think a movie or series likely will happen at some point. Yeah. And I should say, you know, Shane, I should, in fairness, say, you know, there were three other books written about the Ghost Army before I started working on it. So I am not... Um, 
the great, you notice I didn't tell you this at the beginning. <laughs> oh, now you tell me. Right, <laughs> no, right, right. <laughs> I am not the great discoverer of the ghost army. Uh, my work has built on, on what other people have mm. done. And I don't know who's contacted them about possible movie deals. I will say my book and my film are better. I mean, uh, you know, I think, I think they're the cream yeah, of the crop, yeah. but they all have their advantages. So. It's interesting, you know, if you hadn't have told me Ben Affleck, I might have imagined him as a natural person to make this movie, because when I think of what this is like, it's kind of like Argo. Argo meets uh, the Nazis. Yeah, uh, it's Argo meets the Nazis. There you go. It's Argo That's how meets Reader's the Digest described my documentary before, long before Ben Affleck was even involved in this. They yeah. said it's Argo meets Der Fuhrer. And yeah. that is kind that is kind of what it's about. Yeah. For for listeners don't remember who might not remember Ben Affleck directed <laughs> and starred in Argo and I think won an Oscar for Best Director or certainly he won did. Best Picture. He did. He um, did. So he's invested in these kind of stories. Well, well, as we wrap up, I want to ask you just a couple more things about the ghost army itself. So obviously uh, the war ends. Uh, the Allies are victorious. What happens to the ghost army at the end of the war? So um, – their last deception mission is in uh, March 1945, and then after that, it's realized that they they just don't need them anymore because the Germans are are, are on the run. There, mm. uh, they briefly are are guarding uh, and working to supply um, uh, uh, people in displaced persons camps. So these are slave laborers that the Nazis had brought into Germany. Uh, there are millions of them. This is actually a huge problem that will go on for years after the end of the war. Uh, uh, but these guys are guarding a bunch of displaced persons camps and having various adventures trying to find food for people and, and take care of them. And then they're brought back to the U.S. and they are told to prepare to go to Japan because they are going to be sent for the invasion of Japan being led by Douglas MacArthur. They are given a month off. And during that month off, the U.S. drops the atomic bomb on mm. Japan. And when they come back, uh, MacArthur has said, you know, Japanese have surrendered. MacArthur has said, we don't need the ghost army. Uh, and so now it's, uh, it's everybody's on the point system and how quickly can they get out? Depends on how many points they have. And Fred Fox, uh, who was, uh, uh, started out as a Lieutenant and he became a captain in the unit. Uh, he is assigned to write the official history and he has enough points to leave the army. And they basically say, when you're done with the official history, you can go. And so his last line in the official history is something to the effect of, and now I've completed this, you know, and I'm leaving the army. Goodbye. Um, I'm out uh, of here. And, and so it kind of, and then, and then it goes, um, yeah, there are, there are some articles about it in 1945, a long story, but publicity, you know, secrecy is breached and publicity takes over for a bit, but then the Pentagon hushes it up and it really, you know, stays pretty quiet. Except for one article in the 1980s, it stays pretty quiet until the 1990s. So it kind of goes underground. And what happens to all of those inflatable tanks? Where where are they? Where are they now? Are they in a vault someplace? Are they thrown into a dump? Where are they? Yeah, and do you I have know. one? I know. I, I, I have a replica. I have one that, that I had. I have several that I had made. Um, I They burned the tanks that they had in Europe. Wow. I've seen the pictures of that fire. So I believe they burned everything they had. I mean, they would have been pretty beaten up by that time and they probably weren't worth the um, space sending home on ships. They would have had other ones that they would have given them. So what happens to them? I know that uh, there's some pictures that are post-war uh, where these tanks are in the pictures. So they're being used um, as part of... Um, War games, you know, where the army fights a, a, a you know, a, 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 they have a name for it. I can't think of it, but they fight a force, uh, uh, like a, uh, you, you, you know, you have a red team and a blue team, and, and they use these in that in those kind of missions. Um, and then I heard an intriguing story that I've never been able to track down that a whole bunch of these were sold to Israel. Really? So my assignment to you, Shane. Here we go. There you go. You know, when you're when you're done with uh, all the cyber stuff and you're done with uh, everything else, <laughs> you can try to see if you can track down did these inflatable tanks actually go to Israel. But the thing that I think is still around, but I haven't been able to find it, would be the sound effects. Uh, okay, because uh, sound effects records they would have made multiple sets, and and 
and it's also possible that ghost army soldiers took some of them home. I mean, there's a lot of places and, and the tanks probably wouldn't have lasted. They were, they were made out of a, um, a material that wasn't like a long lasting mm-hmm. uh, material. So they probably wouldn't still be, they'd be able to just ball of rubber, but, uh, but the sound effects should be around. And, you know, if I ever get a time when I'm not busy doing interviews, I will try to go search for those sound effects and see if I can find them. Track it down. I can imagine playing them out in the field, you know, for a whole afternoon and letting them move closer to people so they can get the, uh, I mean, the scare the like. dickens out of people. Yeah, you yeah. really would. Yeah. Maybe you want to put the word out that this is like, this is not an advancing army. We're doing a recreation here today. You know, we, 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 we did a, we had a, the place in, in, in the UK where the ghost army first worked with inflatable tanks. It's Walton hall and it's a hotel. Now when we do the ghost army tour, Uh. we stay at Walton hall. And one year we had an inflatable tank and we had sound effects playing out of a boom box with, um, uh, uh, of tanks going and literally somebody walks around the corner of this building. And thought there was a tank, right? (laughs) They were hit by the visual and the sound and they thought it was real. And I thought, man, if we can do that and we're not even really trying, it must have been something during World War II. Must have been. Uh, Well, Rick, our tradition on Chatter is that for the actual last question, I reached into the Chatter box, which I have in front of me. And I pre-select a question uh, that's been pre-written. I select it random. So we're going to see what your actual last question is. Now, when when are these written? When when are we, they? We wrote them when we started the show. So it's the same pool of 20 or so questions that we pluck out every okay. week. Oh, this is a good one. I like this one. Uh, what's a common misperception about your profession that really annoys you? What do people often get wrong about what it is that that you do for a living? So uh, people think that because I'm a documentary filmmaker that I should be able to make all TV sets work. <laughs> it's like it's like you're in a you're in a presentation and you come in and they're like I can't do this but you can probably figure it out and I'm like uh you know I I don't know but you know because there's multiple remotes and a lot of buttons and cables and trying to figure it all out and it's like that's really not what I do if you actually think about what I do I'm really a writer who yeah. hires everybody else that they need to to be able to make a documentary film so um, I have actually been forced to learn uh, about projection systems and TVs so that, you know, when I do presentations, I can do that. But it still is sort of amazes me that people think, well, you're a documentary filmmaker. You should be able to figure that out. You're the tech guy, right? Uh, I know, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'll come over to your house and fix anything you need. Excellent. I'll remember that. Uh, well, Rick Beyer, the book is The Ghost Army of World War II, How One Top Secret Unit Deceived the Enemy with Inflatable Tanks, Sound Effects, and other audacious fakery. It's a terrific story. It's a beautiful book. Uh, And thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about it. It's just been a really great pleasure and lots of fun chatting with you. So thank you so much for having me. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.